Hello, welcome to People Who Are Politicians. I'm your host, Matt Antonelli. And before we get to today's episode, just some news on some upcoming episodes. So uh, this week I'm catching up with Councillor Peter Maddock. And then after that I'll be catching up with Milton Dick, who's the Federal MP for Oxley. Terry Butler, who's the Federal MP for Griffith. And then um, Julian Simmons, who's the uh, Brisbane councillor for Walter Taylor Ward. But he's also the Federal candidate for Ryan, pre-selected by the Liberal National Party. So those are some upcoming episodes. Um, so a couple Liberal, a couple Labour, and um, I'm hoping to get some other minor parties in as well. Now the episode you're about to listen to is episode 15. It features Andrew Lamming, who is the Federal Member for Bowman, which if you don't know where Bowman is, it is uh, it covers all of Redland City and uh, includes North Stradbrook Island and a lot of sort of the the Morton Bay Islands, which are really, it's just a really beautiful place to visit. So I would really encourage you to go have a look. I'll put some information in the episode description about um, some things you can go and look at in in uh, Bowman. And uh, I'll put some information on where you can follow Andrew Lamming and keep up to date with what he's doing in that area and in federal parliament. Um, now, uh, if you've been following politics... Uh, or you have an interest in politics, you've probably heard of Andrew Lamming. He's been uh, the member for Bowman since 2004, so he's been around for a while, um, and uh, it was really good to catch up with him and hear um, about his career and even, you know, some you know some of the more recent history of the last few weeks to do with the Liberal Party. So uh, I really hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, I would like it. It would be great if you could... Um, rate and review and subscribe and share and all those things you can do with podcasts on iTunes or on SoundCloud and um, anywhere else the podcast is posted. I'll put all that information in the episode description as well. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you. Um, welcome to People Who Are Politicians. I'm your host, Matt Antonelli, and today I'm joined by Andrew Lamming, the Federal MP for Bowman. How are you? Mate, it's great to have you out here in the bay side of Redlands, a long way from your home in Indrapilly. Yeah. Um, so how about we start with, with Bowman and Redlands? So sure. what, what's the, the electorate like? Could you give it a bit of an overview background? For sure. Us? Well, federal electorates are big places. In my case, it's about 60 square kilometres of Bayside, Brisbane, we include most of the Bay Islands. We don't have Morton or South Stradbroke. And most federal electorates have around 100,000 voters and 140,000 residents. And in this case, it's outer metropolitan, 30 kilometres from Brisbane City. Uh, if you're going to the Gold Coast, turn left mm-hmm. before you cross the Logan River and you're in Redland City, which paradoxically was actually considered to be the capital of Queensland for a short time in 1850 and actually fully laid out and uh, mapped the streets and built them, but never ever was the decision made because there was no port. So we've always got a bit of a chip on our shoulder about not being oh, the capital okay. of Queensland. <laughs> well, you still got you know the lovely Bayside instead, so that'll make up for it, I'm sure. So let's uh, talk about your where you started in politics. So I know your father was in the Queensland Parliament. Um, it, is that sort of where your interest in politics came from, your parents, or did you have your own way of sort of getting into it? Look, there's always a family influence on decisions that one makes 
about a career. So my father was in local government on the Sunshine Coast and always conversations around policy. Uh, he had many guests over that always had uh, uh, a love of my mum's cooking and keen to have a yarn to my dad about policy. But I was already fully graduated as a doctor and heading overseas by the time dad went into state parliament. So I would just fly home and help him on campaigns. And I knew it was fun. It looked like a fun thing to do. So by 2000, I was finishing up in the US and John Howard was facing a uh, 2001 election campaign and he was behind and he managed to win an Aston by-election and, and then we had these two uh, planes fly into the Twin Towers and suddenly this became a massive issue and I decided to throw my hat in the ring. Mm-hmm. So I called the Liberal Party. They said, well, you're under the, under 80 years of age, that's encouraging. <laughs> uh, would you like to stand in a Labour seat because you can't have a Liberal one? I said, that's fine. So they offered me... Ipswich, they offered me Logan, and they offered me Redlands, and I said, which one's closest to the beach? So the next <laughs> thing I was down here in Redlands and running in an election six months later, and came within one and a half percent of winning that seat. It became the most marginal Labour seat in the country under the great Con Shaka. So I just stuck around, knowing that I might try my luck next time, and got lucky in 04 and held the seat. So um, that win in 04, that, this was a... Um redistributed area what was it like campaigning for you because obviously you helped with your dad but what was it for you the first time campaigning um as the liberal uh, candidate well when you start from behind and you start as an unknown you've just got to work assiduously one by one name by name writing everyone you met down on a bit of paper with a note so you didn't forget them uh, this was pre-smartphones, of course, well and truly. And then I would basically do what I could do, which was, having no money, do roadside. So stand on the side of the road with a sign and build the name recognition. And people would then say, who's this guy turning up at a sporting club wearing a bright shirt or a fancy vest? So dressing a little differently and then getting around to the areas where I knew there were swing voters and that was particularly younger people, which was my advantage over the current incumbent MP. So coming with the 1.5%, that was a 2% swing at a time when most people weren't getting big swings against a very well-resourced MP. Gave me a good springboard for next time. So even though they chopped off a big Labor part of the north of this seat and created a new seat with it, the area below was still a seat that we got a 6% swing, which was a pretty good effort. And that's simply because you run twice and you persevere. So when you were elected, what sort of policy areas became your focus or passion areas for you when you entered government? Well, I was a medical specialist at the time. I'd worked at the World Bank as a reconstruction economist and a consultant, and I'd also worked in East Timor. So I had an interest in foreign affairs and how the health system worked. And to be honest, I didn't know much else about federal policy. I just knew they did immigration, defence and foreign affairs. But I knew they were the big issues that I wanted to be part of the thinking And my first issue that I picked up was generic drug prices. So basically, after a drug has come off patent, its price is meant to fall. In the rest of the world, that's exactly what happens. But in Australia, for a range of reasons, prices stay high and people end up paying $32 for a drug that should be costing $1 or $2 in other countries. So I proposed a price referencing and price disclosure system, which sounds awfully obtuse, But in short, it was estimated to save around $1.5 billion a year over the next three years. Tony Abbott introduced the policy as health minister. Labor continued it. And today, 12 years on, it has saved the nation over $12 billion. And that's probably the biggest fiscal saving ever achieved by a backbencher. 
And uh, if you, because early in your career as a, a GP, you were in mm. rural uh, Queensland and New South Wales. Did that? Um, did you see the the struggle out there with the prices of these drugs and things? Or is that where this sort of began as well? Or? No, I did on graduation head out bush, mostly because my dad had grown up in the bush and I wanted to connect with a part of Australia I didn't know. So I worked in Gundawindi, Mungandai, Dhirinbandi, St George, and then later in Gundagai. But really, as a GP, you're a unique publicly available quantity. You don't truly understand the bush by being a professional in a town. But it was a great time in my life, but no, it didn't overly shape political policy. You talk to obviously a lot of your coalition colleagues and your the your constituents. Do you have a, a particular philosophy or criteria that you use to support policy for yourself? Good question. So most people talk about truth. I, I don't think there is as much truth in politics as there should be, but I think it's completely reasonable to look for a just approach. So justice is very important to me. Uh, it's way more than social justice. It's about uh, justice as much for the individual as it is at a community level and people can't always hope for the answer they want but I think if they can see in a broader picture it's a just outcome then a politician has done their job and the second part being a younger MP at the time that I came in I really wanted to make politics more interesting and engaging for younger people. And so how do you go about engaging with younger people then? So obviously you get around your electorate, but do you have any other ways specifically that you encourage young people to get involved? So we've tried to do things that are novel and things that haven't been done before. If they have been done before and they worked, I suspect everyone will do them. Uh, It's not essential to be young to appeal to young people. As I've argued, it's okay to be old and uncool, just employ some young, cool people. (laughs) So I've always argued politicians need to employ the people that make up and complement their skill set. My view has been self-evidently listening to young people is a decent start. Secondly, being where they are is a good start and that involves a bit of door knocking and being at sporting events and then doing stuff that they do. So if it means playing a bit of beer pong on Australia Day, don't be too embarrassed to do that. If it means turning up and being part of their school video as a walk-on character, taking a bit part, offer to do that. So people recognise and they respond to things that are unusual or unexpected. You can be a politician doing what is expected and, and anticipated of you, mm. and you become invisible. So in many cases, I've tried to do things that are a little different. Superficially, one would say to be noticed. But in reality, it's when you do something least expected that it's often most appreciated. And are those, would you say that, I guess, that behaviour or strategy is sort of too... Um... I guess make you seem more like just a normal person because um, the reason I why, why I start this podcast, I guess, is because we often um, categorise politicians in a certain group and we might say all the Labour people are for unions and all the Liberals are for big business and there's no... You know, we forget that you guys are people. So do you do that sort of thing to sort of, um, I guess let people know that you're just a real person? <laughs> well, politicians are engaged in a full-time battle which they inevitably lose to prove that they're normal people Mm. because the public have decided they're not. The reality is, of course, we're just plucked from people to become politicians, but in the eyes of most, we then become a completely different product. And I'll spend my entire career trying to prove people wrong or otherwise, but in reality, they simply regard you as a piece of 
public property that should be publicly involved at times when the public need you. But convincing people that you're just one of them is actually enormously hard to do. A human can only have, I think, so many bona fide social interactions. And as I say, you can only have so many really close friends. So a politician, in my case, is expected to try and reach out to 100,000 people. You're going to have to be, and I've said it before quite controversially, somewhat sociopathic in the way you do it. You need to use those social connections for an ulterior motive, which is convincing people to put their mark next to your name on a ballot form. And each politician goes about it a different way, but I'd argue that proving to people that you are not a politician but a person is often an extremely high bar and very hard to do for the reason that if I meet 10 new people every day in my job, by the end of a three-year period, I haven't met 10% of my population. Um, so because you've been, you've been around for a while now, I guess 14 years, um, so what have been some more challenging aspects of your job, would you say, or challenging events in your career? Well, I think I'm pretty blessed with an electorate that is reasonably understanding and keeps politics in perspective, isn't overly extreme in their views, and the campaigns here have been uh, reasonably positive. Uh, they can be extremely draining for other people in other parts of Australia. As soon as you're out of the political death zone with a reasonable margin, then of course elections become uh, more of a quiet step-by-step -step journey that's quite predictable and less chaotic. So we've worked very hard to move out of that death zone. This was fundamentally a 3% Labor seat 20 years ago. It's now 7% Liberal. And uh, the fact is that if every other Liberal seat is less than 7, then you're going to be the last one on the chopping block. So you want to stay there. To stay there, what you've got to be doing is recognising, as I said before, that 90% of people aren't going to meet you between elections. Mm. So you need to create another persona, another uh, quantity, be it on the side of the road, be it a billboard, be it a broadcast, be it a clip on Facebook. You've got to use these mechanisms to secure your re-election. What about some, some highlights for you? So I know you've mentioned some um, things you've gone through government uh, with Tony Abbott's health minister earlier. What is there anything else that you can think of that um, I guess you're proud of in your career? So you asked me a question that I didn't fully answer. So there's been tons of challenges as well. I didn't skip over them. Uh, but in 2007, I had the distinct pleasure of an AFP raid on my office, oh. seeing people walking in uh, with white gloves on and uh, basically conducting a search warrant on my office. That was a pretty impressive day. And I basically said to them, my office is your office, but I'm going uh, to deliver Meals on Wheels. Let me know when you're finished. Uh, so that was exciting. Uh, surviving the Work Choices election later that year was interesting because it was in political history the most expensive Labor campaign to not successfully win a seat outside a by-election. So holding off a $1.1 million election campaign was a real experience. Uh, being on the UNESCO National Commission and being able to travel Paris to look at those sorts of things has been great. And uh, we do get to do a whole lot of stuff, I guess, with our schools as well. So running local campaigns is a bit of a privilege as well. Uh, and then lastly, try to combine a life in politics with your own kids. So increasingly, your social networks are driven, first of all, by your partner and who they have uh, as friends. And then secondly, uh, the parents of your kids' friends become your friends. So forming a network through clubs and societies and schools is part of uh, life as a politician. So that'd be the highlights for me. And um, I'll just I'll ask, I'll ask one question about 
the recent events in your, yeah. your party, um, because, I mean, the Labour Party's had similar problems anyway. Yeah. Um, with this sort of uh, shifting leaders, do you mm. find that has uh, as big an impact on the electorate, or do you think it's more of a, the people understand the party's policies rather than the party mm. leader? Fabulous question. So, obviously, we are becoming more presidential over time, with people increasingly using e-media to decide if they like person A or person B. That's both at the electorate level and with our leaders nationwide. But I've referred to the two-leader curse, and when political parties struggle with two highly capable, ambitious people, they usually tear each other apart, <laughs> given the choice. So with Kevin Rudd and Julie Gillard, that was the case. There's just no way for that uh, administration to survive in that configuration. Uh, under John Howard, there was never, ever a rival. And it says something to Peter Costello that he was a loyal deputy and treasurer for, uh, for nine or ten years. So the two-leader curse is an issue. It's no longer an issue, as I can see it, in our Liberal Party. We've finally brought that period that dates right back to 2007 when Malcolm made his first challenge on Brendan Nelson. So uh, that has been 11 years with the two-leader curse. Uh, Labor's had their two-leader curse. They may have it again with Albo. But at this stage, we may be pulling our stuff together and we have six months to try and win back the public. In answer to your question, do they like policies or the individual? Australians were mortified and disgusted by the events. But Australians are typically uh, highly dissatisfied with politics, no matter when you show it to them. But two weeks ago, it was on 24-7 and inevitably everything they saw they hate. But in reality, I need to remind them, like great sporting franchises, the fans elect a board and the board decides who the manager is and the coach. And the board can remove the manager or the coach at any time. They remove them when they think they're going to lose the season. Elections are even bigger because when you lose, you're out for three seasons watching the other guys in power. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah so I suppose... Um... It always comes down to the numbers a little bit because I guess if you don't want Labor to get in, you're going to make sure you've got the right team at the helm. Mm. I'll bring it back to your electorate a little bit. Um, what are some uh, uh, maybe community groups or events in the area that you think people should come and visit Redlands for? So this is a great question. Tourism infrastructure, and I've always followed John Aitken's comment of follow the money. Uh, you have to work out where the money wants to go, what they want to do, and you've got to offer it. We know that Brisbane is a bit of a hub and a landing point for other locations. I've got to make sure that Redlands is injected into that movement. So we think that international visitors are going to want to have an Indigenous experience, a koala experience. They may well want a, a water and island experience, but basically they want to get to the Gold Coast, right? So we've got to find a way to offer these things, be it a Toondah Harbour redevelopment so that we have a world-class fisherman's wharf and foreshore. We've got to have an economy on Strabag Island because that natural beauty is unique. An indigenous experience is hard to go past Kwandamuka. And if you're going to be hugging a koala and learning more about them, you can either go north to Australia Zoo, but most don't. You can go west to Lone Pine, and most don't want to go west. Or you can be part of the corridor of movement to the Gold Coast, and that's where Redlands comes in as a potential koala infrastructure. And having people coming here, making it synonymous with koalas, is important, basically because dugongs are our other major mammal, and they're quite ugly. <laughs> Um, I'll just uh, I'll wrap up with this last question. Um, when you um, inevitably leave politics, um, be it retirement or you know an election, um, 
And what kind of legacy would you like to have left behind, be it in Bowman or Australia as a whole? So I think to summarise your question, it's if you were retired either by private choice or public choice. <laughs> yes, right. I try and be gentle with the question. That's right. So I don't mind which way it happens, but there's, in my mind, a lot more to do. So I'm a social policy reformer. My passion is that Australia has the best health, education, employment, social protection system in the world. And my specific areas of interest are maximising use of the welfare system, uh, a health system that offers those four pillars that we know well, uh, which is uh, uh, you know public hospitals, Medicare, um, MSAC and the PBS. Uh, and then finally, an education system that is world-class and can be for our, our, our quite socioeconomically diverse and ethnically diverse population. Uh, these are unfair comparisons often when we compare ourselves with Asian or Scandinavian monolinguistic and monocultural economies. So I want to improve those as much as I can. There's big steps that can be taken. And I really relish the fight. I love being criticised. I love bad headlines on good policy because it gets people thinking. And if I can penetrate through uh, the general uh, miasma of apathy and say something that grabs people, and if they just think about a question for a second, uh, I can possibly build a better social policy system for Australia than we otherwise would have. And it's good to have just one or two people that are social sector specialists that are in Canberra doing that kind of thing and not reliant on experts, intellectuals and advisors to tell them what to say. All right, well, thank you very much for catching up with me. Um, I hope you enjoyed the chat. Um, Good luck in the election next year. All the best, Matt. Thanks for coming out here. Bye-bye.